Blog Talk Radio. I'm your host, Tori Gates. A housing community, the pretense of the American dream, full of unstable, dysfunctional people. The Court of Vintage Woods is a collection of characters whose appearances are as off-kilter as each of them. Josh Penzone has brought them all to life. Josh, welcome to the program. Hey, Terry. Thanks for having me. Well, let's begin with okay, these stories. Sorry, Tori. I said Terry. I'm sorry. I, said, I think I'm a little nervous. I said Terry, not Tori. I'm sorry, buddy. Tori. It's, it's totally okay. I, I'll answer to a lot of names. So, and and <laughs> that's, that's just one of many. No worries. Anyway, this is about you, Josh. Um, here are some really intriguing and sometimes a little disturbing stories. I want to get into like sort of the beginning of it is that these appeared to be a collection of stories, and they were your master's thesis at Wilkes University. Am I right? Tell me about this. Yeah. Um, so <clears throat> uh, it was probably like 2010, and um, the whole thing started with my wife, actually. Um, none of this would exist without her. So she encouraged me to get my master's. And, you know, if you get your, I'm a teacher, so if we got our master's, um, and I, it came with a nice pay increase. And then, like, you know, after five years, you, you pay off the master's with a pay increase. So she was all about that, too. But she just kept saying, you always talk about your writing. You want to get serious about your writing. You know, you should do a program. And um, so I bought this low-residency book, um, you know, it's a low residency program, so you're on campus twice a year. And uh, the woman who wrote it actually attended it, and she was in my cohort. And I didn't know that at the time. But I flipped through it, and I looked at all the different schools, and for some reason, Wilkes just kept popping out. And then there was um, a woman uh, that I met there was actually one of my professors. She's also a writer. named Kaylee Jones. Um, you know, she had a quote in there that just really spoke to me. And I was like, I want to meet this woman and I want to, I want to learn from these people. And so in 2011 was my first year there and it was about a two year program. And uh, it took a little longer because in the middle of it, I couldn't go to the one residency or the semester because uh, we had a you know baby. So that, that was more important mm-hmm. than I had been finishing at the time. Um, mm-hmm. still is. And, um, you know, so I got there and then the whole thing is like, uh, you know, you have your, it's like your message, you go through some stuff. So I took fiction course and a, and a screenwriting course. And I went there originally for screenwriting. Like I wanted to do screenwriting, just love film drawn to it. But then there was just something about like, I want to be better at writing fiction. I just, I think I just want to go to school, you know, being a teacher for so long, I wanted school. I wanted to learn. I wanted something that I felt was really going to challenge me and work. And so I, um, I chose fiction as my, my focus, and Kaylee became my mentor. And um, I've just I've always loved short fiction. And, um, 
you know, so I, I didn't realize the challenge at the time of trying to write 11 stories or so where they all fit together and they all feed into each other. And it just, it was a, it was a huge challenge, but uh, that's how it kind of all started. And I've always liked big ensemble like movies and mm-hmm. where there's a lot, lot of different characters where they just, every action seems to affect everybody else and the personalities t- keep coming through with each scene, even if they're not prominent in the scene. So I thought, what if I kept revisiting these characters throughout each story? And then they all lived on a cul-de-sac, um, mm-hmm. you know, and there's a movie, I don't know if you ever heard of a movie called The Burbs with Tom Hanks came out in like the late eighties. Yes. It's a satire. Yeah. I love that movie. It's one of my favorites. You know, it takes place on a cul-de-sac. And there's a line in that um, where the garbage man who is like having to clean up the trash because anyway the neighbors throw they're trying anyway uh, he goes I hate cul-de-sacs there's only one way out and that I don't know why that line really spoke to me in some way and then like the the visual of the sky with it being a peephole and the idea that we never truly know our neighbors even how much time we spend with them I mean we never really truly know ourselves most of the time and that just idea of all the houses facing each other kind of became a fascination to me and who these people would become. And so that's when it started back in 2011. And it just, you know, I graduated in like 20, I think 13, 2014, I can't remember. Um, but, you know, just keep cobbling the stories together and keep them, keep them going. And um, it's, it's been, it's been through a lot, a lot of process. I would say the original stories and what my thesis looked like when I was done working with Kaylee, uh, is nowhere really near where it is now or the level of writer that I was back in 2013 as opposed to when um, Brown Posey published it last year in 2019. It's gone right. through quite the arc. Well, that's so. the thing. It, you sometimes find that uh, you know what you think looks good and reads good and is so good you know, a few years ago, and then suddenly it isn't. And that, that is – not to talk too much about myself, but my current book, Searching for Roy Buchanan, was that. I wrote that in 2007, and you think it's really good. You think you know, you think it's got something, and then you can't get it published, so you're writing more things while you're at it. And then eventually down the road you revisit and you realize your writing style has changed, and this book is so thin and so not mm-hmm. good and you expect so much yeah. more of yourself and you expect so much more of these characters. So you probably went through with each of those characters as many uh, rewrites, interviews with the characters and back and forth in your mind, right? Yeah. And, uh, you know, the dream was always to get the collection published because with link stories, you know, that when they all work together, it just reads better. But um, in the, in the, you know, trying to get them individually published through literary magazines, um, I, the rejections with a note, you know, mm-hmm. where the editor took his or her time to um, give me a little note, a little note of encouragement, a little note like, hey, we, this is a hard pass for us. We deliberated, but we didn't quite get the ending. All of those little feedback where they took the time to give just that, that personalized commentary was really beneficial. And I just have learned over the years to never discount someone's criticism of what I've written, even if I wholeheartedly disagree with it. You just take a breath and you put the ego aside and you just try to figure out 
how it can better relate to a reader beyond me with my myopic vision at the time writing this and, you know, on my own thinking that it's working. And it keeps, Mm -hmm. I had a rule where if I, a story got rejected five times without a note, something was wrong with it. You know, Mm. like if it's keep getting, if it's keep getting passed over, then I need to revisit it. What is not working? Is the characterization not working? Am I, is the story too contrived to fit the character? With short fiction, it's all like the plot's not really there. It's a it's a series of actions that planning of who this character um, is, whether they realize it or not. You know, so mm-hmm. I I just kept having these rules for myself that I would chart everything down, and if I got to it, like you know, I have like I still have it on my hard drive, like all the rejection list of how many times these stories got rejected. Um, and then it just kind of kept on plodding along until I felt like I was just getting a better grip on how to tell a story. And it mm-hmm. took a while. It's hard. Well, I definitely want to ask you a bit more about uh, some of these rejections a little bit. You make a movie reference here. I got this really strange vibe, and you, you'll, you should know this one. I got a really weird vibe as I read this book. You noted the burbs a more contemporary version of it. I remember a novel, which I did not read, but I saw the movie. There was a novel called The Swimmer, and it was made into a film starring Burt Lancaster. Oh, yeah, yeah. It shows up on TBS every... Yeah, it shows up on TBS every now and then, and I remember seeing it 30 years ago wondering, what is this? Because it was just such a strangely shot film, and I only watched part of it. And then a few years ago, it popped up again. And uh, apparently the novelist, and I cannot remember this guy's name for the life of me. John, but yeah, John this Cheever. Was a, yeah. Cheever, yes. John Cheever yeah. wrote apparently a series of these novels where he sort of took a rather cynical lampooning of people of wealth or people of privilege or people who thought they were more than they actually were. And Lancaster's character... Ned, uh, I think his name was Ned Harris was a very yeah. yeah yeah very narcissistic kind of guy. He was someone who married his way into this world of people and then comes to find in the wake of his marriage falling apart that he never really was accepted in that group. He never really was liked. He never uh gained any kind of respect. But it's also clear as the story goes on that he didn't do any, himself any favors. So and and it's like the swimming is his metaphor to get through uh what he's what he's experiencing and you sort of see him kind of go mad as it goes along and i just remembered going back to that when i looked at some of these characters when i looked at jenny for example and i looked at uh george and i looked at these other characters and how they all kind of had their they were all living in their own little pods in the cul-de-sac and they all kind of had their own little world and when they came out of the pod they just sort of there was this almost this universal oh hi how are you neighbor but there's also this disdain for one another and themselves i just got that yeah, I, feeling i i think um when you're unsure of who you are and uh you realize that most of what you do is a show or some sort of charade after a mm-hmm. while that, you know, it, it, it just doesn't sit well because you have to make a change and whether you do it subconsciously or consciously, you begin to react to the world in a way that is not 
what you've accepted as the normal, which is still very much pretend because we pretend it's normal, but the normalcy isn't really there because life mm-hmm. isn't really working. And it's, and I like that you mentioned the swimmer. Actually, I teach that. I've taught it for oh, wow. years. Um, yeah, the swimmer, and it had a big influence on me. Cheever is great. Uh, his like the swimmer is actually it's a it's a short story, and the movie's the movie's so dark. Um, and it ends, and you know, I remember how it ends with him like banging on the house, and it's empty, and he realizes that it's, there's nothing in his life. And that's how the story ends. And I remember yeah. reading about the trivia where they had to fight for that studio ending. And, of course, it bombed because it was such a terrible, demoralizing ending where no one wants to walk out of a theater feeling that way. Uh, but that's how the, the short story ends where he swims mm-hmm. the, the pools and he calls it the Lucinda River. Uh, but he has some other wonderful stories in, like, his collection. And they deal, like, you know, with basically these privileged people that have these lives and and they're not all they think they are. There's a great one called The Housebreaker of Shady Hill, where mm-hmm. um, which I uh, the narr uh, the I can't remember the character's name, but he just goes and he breaks into his his uh, neighbors' houses and steals like tiny things from them, and just to have this secret that he has going on. And, and that, that I, I think right Cheever into... keep going. Yeah, yeah, Cheever definitely influenced. Yeah, I was gonna say Cheever definitely influenced me. I can't write like Cheever. The way he writes, it's just gorgeous. But um, uh, yeah, he definitely influenced me, and I would use him on like my uh, you know letters to publishers and trying to get them interested. I would compare it to Cheever, um, you know, thematically. So yeah, I love mm-hmm. that you mentioned him. Well, it's really interesting because that all leads into the first character that that just jumped out at me, and Ginny kind of leads the whole thing off, and she does some Cheever esque type of things and <laughs> or rather the, the the housebreaker type of thing and it's sort of like it, it's interesting because when you start her off we already kind of know what we're in for in terms of her problems but then it just she is just such a complex and bizarre character and it's like it's hard <laughs> for me to feel sorry for her but at the same time it's like wow <laughs> yeah and I like the hard like, so how do you create for some of these characters? How like as a reader, you yeah. want to feel some sort of you know sympathy or empathy for the protagonist, and yep. not all of my characters are very likable or they just have so much going on. Um, but at the heart of it, she's broken. Yeah, and she with the empty nest and off the pills and. Um, the, the marriage problems and realizing that the last 20 plus years of her life had just kind of been, you know, uh, a, a, a narcotic drone of not embarrassing her family uh, mm-hmm. and wanting to be released from that. And so I, I, when I originally started writing this, I was writing this and um, I actually used the, one of the first drafts of this story. And I, and uh, to mention Kaylee again, because I wanted to work with her. I want. I like, gave her to read it. She's like, yeah, yeah, I can work with you. I like this. Let's, let's see where this goes. And uh, in the middle of writing this, she, she like kind of just one of her comments was she just she's just kind of like stone cold uh, looks at me and this is you know when we're in residency and she goes, you know she's mentally sick, right? <laughs> I just started laughing because <laughs> Tori, it never occurred to me. It, I was like, you know what? Yes, you she, you're right. There's probably. And then the moment she said that, it started to come together a little more, and it started to build that sympathy for her that she wasn't yep. just some sort of sociopath going into people's houses. And the, the whole thing, the whole idea for the story and the collection started with Ginny. 
Um, yeah. And the story came to me when I was in a very affluent um, suburb here in Columbus called Upper Arlington. I was driving through one of these just magnificent streets called Cambridge, and all these houses are like, you know, mm-hmm. so nice, and they're just historical yep. looking. And I was driving through, and I didn't need to go this way. I, I, I liked going this way so I could look at the houses. And the front door mm-hmm. was open, and I was like, I just wanted to sneak inside. I wanted to see who these yeah. people were, how they were living, what was going on in their house, maybe even go through their drawers. Like, this was a thought I had. And then I just kind <laughs> of created – I created Ginny from this. And, um, mm-hmm. you know, and my, 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 my dad owned a restaurant, and uh, th- that's taxing because family businesses, yep. restaurants especially, he's there 12 hours a day. And so, oh, yeah, you know, yeah. looking back now, being a parent, I always wondered how my mom, three boys, my dad was pretty much at work all the time and how stressful that must have been for her. My wife and I only have one kid. We feel like we lose to her all the time, let alone three mm-hmm. obnoxious boys running around the house. So then I, I added that because I knew I understood that familiarity and that stress. I added that to Ginny because Ginny would then, you know, maybe feel like second because he wasn't home. You know, George, the husband, wasn't home. And so that just kind of added to it. And then um, Karen, the neighbor, uh, she has a lot. She's a mess. I mean, she's just a mess. I actually wrote a very short vignette with her, and I just – I couldn't get it right, and I just left her kind of alone uh, Mm -hmm. with her husband, Bruce. Uh, I just kind of left her alone. I never really got it going, and I couldn't figure it out, so – um, you know, Karen, who's a mess, I think, and since she was such a mess, in my mind, she couldn't see the signs of Jenny being not stable. Yep. Because when I, was, when I was writing Karen, somebody that is so concerned with covering themselves up with the, with the um, disappointment they have about their life, that's mm-hmm. where their focus is. So therefore, they can't see the signs of somebody else. Um, and yes. all she saw was another sad person, so therefore she felt that was enough to spark a friendship. And Karen yeah. was wrong when when it came to that. Well, yeah, and it's it's yeah. a pretty amazing thing there. And now talking about Ginny's husband George, yes, he obviously devoted to his work and his business, and we get that to an extent. He also strikes me as a man keeping up appearances it's like that's everything it seems like that's everything to him too because he's constantly on Ginny about her medication and on about you know you mm-hmm. know, you know the, the same thing is just like oh my god what will the neighbors think and it's it's not yeah it's not really in the story but when I was um you know like you know when you're like writing you like write way too much exposition just trying mm-hmm. to figure out who the characters are so I'm yes. trying to figure out more George and and it's it's never in there like uh, implicitly or you know I'm sorry explicitly uh, it's implicitly there it's uh, he has so much stress in running the business and running and, and I know because I, I managed the restaurant with my brother for a few years having reliable help having mm-hmm. people show up and do the job that you can trust in a customer based you know service business and it's just stress all the time. And right. so when you go home, you don't want any of that stress. So when I was thinking about George, he put so much pressure on Ginny to just kind of be catatonic because he couldn't deal with another thing when he came home. And it's not yep. like, like I said, it's not like written out. 
but that's kind of where I had his motivation in coming in to just not, you know, complicate life. When he came home, he wanted it quiet. He wanted to just, you know, like stare at the TV and just kind of like be real passive. But, you know, mm-hmm. when Jenny wants him to come home, she wants a husband and someone to talk to and someone to correspond with and someone to connect to and relate to. And after, I would think, two decades of that, Jenny had enough. So she wanted yeah. some excitement, and the way she found it was by going off her medication. That that story was actually – the Whitings was actually published by uh, a, public, a publisher called ELJ Publications, and they later changed the edition. Yep. I don't, they're no longer in print, but um, they, I was so lucky. It was my first story ever published, and um, Ariana, the um, editor-in-chief, she had these um, – ideas called um, afternoon shorts where like you take long mm-hmm. short stories and she made them her own book. So my very first oh, cool. publication was an actual tangible book that I could hold. And, um, you know, and then I felt really, I felt really good about what I wrote because she was very open with some of her, you know, you know, with all of her authors, uh, with some of her uh, mental issues and she felt connected to that story. So I felt like in writing that I got aspects of it, you know, right. I guess as a writer, we always worry about that, right? Like if we're going to write about somebody that has a mental illness to make sure it feels honest and true in some capacity and not. Yeah. That um, is a thing. That's a very difficult thing. I mean, I, I deal with depression and anxiety and I wrote about not myself, but uh, one of the things that I had written in my first book, Parasite Girls, which was self-published in 2013, I had a side character who was suffering from bipolar disorder, and one of my relatives, someone that I'd grown up with and who married one of my brothers, was, and we didn't know it initially, and then as years went on, we began to realize something was very wrong, and she, you know, she's doing okay now, but she went through pretty much an awful lot of treatments and an awful lot of going off the rails, and um, in one of her moments of clarity, she read the book and she said, the character Sora, she said, that's me. You got it. She said, um, you paint the picture of what I live through every day of my life. And I was like, okay, thank heavens I did. <laughs> yeah. No, I, I, and I, I, exactly. Cause we're afraid to sensationalize something or cheapen something or, yes. You know, you use um, a trait like that just to define the character without understanding who the character is. Um, so it's like you don't want to have anything that's too thin or, you know, doesn't really work. So, yeah, it's, it's, you want to get something right, I guess. That's kind of, kind of what you do, especially, with, you know, like when you're writing something honest like that. Um, so I was, it was, I was relieved to, to feel like she wanted to publish it and she felt that I captured an essence of, you know, some of the um, issues that come with people that are bipolar or manic depressive mm-hmm. in that capacity. Well, and I, I never really defined what Jenny is. I, I kind of left that alone, but you know, it's somewhere in, you know, in those arenas. I was about to ask if we ever found out what that really was, but in a way, maybe it's right that we just kind of leave it. Because she may not even know she probably she probably hasn't been diagnosed, and it's clear that her husband doesn't want to know. Yeah, it's I, 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 I you know, I assume like she's you know she talks about her doctor um, that you know she's had a conversations and there's been a medical thing, and then I became cognizant in a way with each story 
as I reveal certain secrets to leave some unexposed. Um, mm-hmm. And I, I just became kind of, you know, aware of what I was doing with that. And it wasn't to like tantalize the reader or say anymore. I mean, all of my stories just kind of like end, I guess, for lack of a better word. Uh, yep, yep. And that's just a heavy influence of reading um, short fiction over the years. Like um, my biggest influence, probably Tobias Wolf, mm-hmm. who just for me is like the cleanest storyteller, and um, he he just doesn't he doesn't lose any words, and he doesn't overwrite. And um, I just I find him so compelling with how clean his language is and how he just allows the story to exist without any kind of like narrative influence which is always hard, right. you know, because you have an idea and you want the narrator be the narrator and you don't want to get heavy handed and, and um, you know, take the narrator's role away from him by like using authoritarian, you know, a, a, like our authoritarian author or voice or something, something like that. So I try to use that as a reminder, but, you know, I'm not him. <laughs> and, uh, but, you know, like him and then uh, Andre Dubas, I think it's very nice. I, I actually never knew he, he, him and like Alice Monroe, like, you know, yep. the ones that are just known for their storytelling, their short fiction storytelling. And I just kind of uh, wanted to honor them in some way with how much they've influenced me and how I've reread their stories over and over and over. Like, like Flannery cool. O'Connor. Flannery O'Connor, um, I, I had this in mind when I was writing each story. She has a quote. I'm going to paraphrase here. Um, mm-hmm. You know, with Flannery O'Connor is just one of the best. And she's the the paraphrase quote, something like, uh, nobody likes my stories more than me. And when I read them over, I laugh and I laugh. <laughs> and I, I don't know if you're familiar with her stories and her work. They're just dark. I mean, they're they're like these dark stories. And I, you know, I they, teach them they to, fit the, to the sense of humor, right? Yes, yeah, you know, and like they'll read things, and I'm like, yeah, but you know, you have to understand where the comedy is to make us understand our false sense of pride in who we are and how we give ourselves more self-importance than is actually mm-hmm. deserved, and therefore we have flaws we can't see, and when we can't see those flaws, the irony of that is left to be laughed at. Um, right. And laugh with to better appreciate and understand. And and when I use that, I use that kind of template in my mind for each character, and each story in a way, no matter how sad or depressing, I I have to like laugh a little bit. And so there's a little yeah. darkness and comedy to it. Well, speaking of, I, of uh, <laughs> go ahead. Well, okay. Well, I because I want to move to the next thing here of the next character, okay. the. This one, I mean, I, I have I have a couple of identifications with Howard. He's kind of like he sort of has taken on the role of the guardian of the court. And here is here is an even more extreme character of of a guy who is really putting up a front and really showing off. And it's interesting that it appears that the one person who you would see most vulnerable seems to be the one person who sees right through him and everybody else doesn't. Where did Howard come from? <laughs> I, um, so I, <laughs> um, uh, so I, I honestly don't really know. I wanted to write about a war veteran and then it mm-hmm. occurred to me, Tori, that I don't know anything. 
like I've never served. Uh, I've only right. seen war movies. Uh, you know, I've read, you know, I loved it. I read, you know, the things they carried by Tim O'Brien and other things that he's yep. written. I, but I, I, I found something fascinating about a war veteran, but I didn't know how to capture that well. And I was afraid that I'd screw it up. Right. Um, yeah. And so I, created a guy and we're, we're dealing with a bunch of phoniness throughout it. Like it becomes, you know, a theme of the book. Uh, mm-hmm. So I created a guy that wanted to give himself self-importance after he'd lost it all. And yeah. like, I think like the little scene where he first you know, like goes into the homeowners association or talks to them with their meeting and he, and he salutes and he pretends that he's a soldier. And then after that, that concept is what kind of started the whole thing. I didn't know where I was going to go with it. And then I created a story um, about like his dad was a big like a soldier in World War II, and his brother, his twin brother, which complicated things, died in Vietnam, and um, how he kind of cobbled those stories together of what he had learned from his family to pass them off as his own. But you know, and no one's going to call out somebody and say you're a liar if they say they're a soldier, you know, especially with the respect we need to give our military and the people who serve. So that right. became a very precarious thing, and the only one that could ever call him out on it is the one who actually was influenced by him to sign up, which is Adam, and then realizing yep. when he's there that the old man was full of crap, which became yep. then the the next story. Yeah. So I yeah. when I look, well, Howard is just, I, and he evolved so much, and his story changed so much. I actually got that published earlier. Um, and then if you read the earlier publication and what it became, I got it published again in a, in a magazine called Blue Lake Review. And then um, that kind of like the change was more what it needed to be. And then Howard and his, oh, his um, grotesqueness and what he was hiding became more and more apparent to how broken he was. And then I just felt fitting for Howard to put his house for sale and to leave because he couldn't face the people that they knew as reality. And that became a fear to him, which I think that kind of idea was the fear to everybody um, with the idea of actually being discovered with who you are and whether you embrace it and like, you know, get stronger from it or you flee in Howard with all of his um, false pretense of strength wasn't strong at all. So he had to leave. And it's, and the thing was, it's like, it played it played out really well to have a guy living a lie because everybody else is living one, and yet at the same time, it's there's sort of the points that you make where certain people do know that he's full of it, and they do know that he's basically living this lie, and it's um, it's almost better that way because it's like the people who really were there are the ones who call him out. And in a way that kind of works, it makes it a much stronger. It makes strong. It makes Howard yeah. more interesting, and it makes it a stronger story. Yeah, I I think um, as far as like the, I, no, they're all pretty complicated in their own way. But there was a complication to Howard when I finally got like the the polished version that is now you know published. When I when I got done reading that one, and I was thinking about like the eight years of revisions and what it's gone through, I was just like, Howard is just messed up. <laughs> I did, like I didn't even know where I didn't even know I didn't even know where to like just like I was kind of like I really have made a fascinating messed up character that will never be healed. Um, you know, like the scenes where he's like going in, he's remembering seeing his dad when his dad has dementia, and um, he's trying to convince him that you know <laughs> somebody else, his brother at the end. 
I just like there's something so sad about that. And I usually don't get caught mm-hmm. up in my stories on sadness, but Howard was really sad. And um, he just like has a name that sounds important too, like Howard Havenshaw. Like he's he's a big deal. Mm-hmm. And um, I don't know, yeah. And then he spawned. He I I, didn't, I, didn't, I had no plans on you know knowing what I was going to do with Adam. And then he kind of spawned that. And then those three stories really work. The first three stories pr- work pretty well together. With Ginny, yeah. um, when Adam's story just kind of, um, you know, medicated on the couch and out of it, and then Adam comes back and he just doesn't know what he got into and he's so angry and he doesn't know where to put that anger. Yeah. Um, that's kind of how I, I wrote him. And um, those boxes at at the end, that was um, yeah. a comment from one of the rejections. And mm-hmm. one of the comment was, What's the hell? What 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 the hell? What the hell? What's with the boxes? What's in the boxes? The reader needs to know what's in the boxes. And in my yep. mind, I knew they're always empty, so I wrote it that way. And I thought it was more powerful to see that all the boxes were empty, and that Howard finally told him a truth. And the truth is, there's nothing there. <laughs> like I found, um, I found that whole thing coming together really interesting. And then I just kind of left it alone. I was like, I, I don't want to mess it up after all. I'm not going to explain anything. Okay, that's, leave it. that's really leave interesting, it and it's like it's like all of them are just sort of empty vessels. All the characters are, despite what they're doing. Um, it was just really mm. interesting in 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 so many ways with that. Now, I think the main thing there is there's there is this common thread, um, and and I guess we've talked a little bit about about how you sort of wrote these characters and everything, and it I, I think. This is a question I must ask, and this is something someone accused me of with some reason years ago was um, a certain person once said, I bet you sleep with your characters. And (laughs) it was something like that. And I said, well, actually, yes, I do. And I said, I have interviews with my characters. I talk to my characters. They talk to me. And over the years, I have found it's really effective because when I'm writing a character sketch, I have an idea of what someone looks like, what they wear, what what kind of what are they doing in the story, why are they here, and my ensemble has to have something to do. I don't like having somebody just there, off to the side, not doing anything. They have to have a a point. And I guess for me, it was this is how I figure out who they are, because I find more and more that it's not about me and it's not about my life or my personality or any of my experiences. It's the experiences of the people around me, the ones who have told me things, the ones I've witnessed. And it's like all of a sudden they just start showing up in the characters. And I'm like, ah, okay. So it's like that's how I get the shades of my characters. And I I wonder what kind of conversations you had with people like Ginny, people like Howard, people like Nikki, the young lady who's kind of trying to figure out who she is. Yeah, um, well, Nikki, you know, I, since I teach high school and I have her age group, um, you know, I get to hear mm. how guarded they are um, yes. and how they want to be so grown up by doing grown mm-hmm. up things. Yep. And at the same time, not telling anybody they're doing the grown up things so they can have the secret of like this own gateway to their adulthood. And, yep. um, you know, an honesty, I, I you know, like kids walking in the halls back and forth and you hear so many different things. And I don't like when I was a kid, if I saw a teacher in the hallway, 
I didn't say anything inappropriate. I didn't say anything that shouldn't be overheard. Yep. You know what I mean? Yep. There was an adult yep. alert. Uh, that, that That is gone. Like, they just say whatever they want to say. And I, I joke with the kids over the years. I'm like, um, they're like, why? I don't want to walk in the hallway when you guys are there because I'm too old to start therapy. You know, because they, they just say <laughs> so much. And it, it is unrelenting, Tori, with how much they just, dispel when they don't think anyone's listening and then when they get put in the classroom they're quiet it's just this um intriguing idea and then all of that blended together just kind of like i was like what could be a big secret for nikki what would make mm-hmm. her feel grown up you know and since i already had the slime ball lance and uh, like at the epicenter of the, the cul-de-sac having an affair with an older man you know that would do it. Um, going on these web web channels and doing whatnot for money, that would do it. Uh, and at the same time, she wants to be caught. And that's another thing I've learned with, uh, you know, not all kids, but like kids sometimes just want to be caught because they want to be yeah. yelled at or they want somebody to care for them. And then the irony of her, you know, father being a guidance counselor in the school and supposed to be understanding of this age group yet he misses all of it uh makes it worse <laughs> most makes guidance it worse counselors for... missed yeah. every point as i recall <laughs> well you know and there's a line like what line do you cross or not cross and they always kids are so good at telling you a half truth yep. and nikki is full of half truths she wants to give you just enough information to see if you're paying attention, to see if you're going to care enough to ask the next question. Yeah. And then, you know, the only one that does is Francis. And there, I, here's something that's interesting. So Francis, you know, Francis Burnish, she's, you know, what, 60s. Mm-hmm. And then my former students that are roughly Nikki's age that have read my book, they will tell me that Francis is their favorite character. They love Francis. Francis is my favorite character. So I'm like, yeah, mine too. And then um, older, like the the older women that I know around Francis's age, they will tell me that Nikki's their favorite character. Mm. I I don't know what that means. I don't know what that that means. Does Nikki remind them of themselves or maybe Nikki reminds them of what they wanted to be? They wanted to be that slightly more rebellious, slightly more duplicitous, and it just didn't happen. I don't know. I have no idea. I don't. I don't press it, but I've, I've heard that you know a handful of times on each side, and I just find that's really interesting. What what readers gravitate towards, and you know, once we put it out there, we have no control over what stories are going to be liked or not liked, or characters appreciated or not appreciated. Um, mm-hmm. You know, so I just find that really interesting, and maybe. Um, Maybe the older women, maybe they want to save Nikki. They want to help her. They want to take their decades and decades of experience with understanding what it means for them to be a woman to then try to help Nikki. And I guess that's kind of how I saw Francis. You know, Francis, like, knew all the stuff. Like, I, Francis, like, knew Nikki and probably what she was up to. But Francis is also the one that was not going to, like, preach to her or tell her what to do or how to do it. So yep. I think she wanted like Nikki to figure things out for herself, but whenever she wanted help with that figuring, Francis would mm. be available. And then therefore cool. she's not telling, cause no kid wants to be told what to do or how to do it. So yep. Francis seemed to have this wisdom about her where she allowed Nikki to approach her 
under. And then I think that's another thing with teens. They, they want to be um, in control when they're vulnerable. And especially in today's generation where kids don't want to yeah. do anything because the moment they do something, some kids going to pull out a cell phone, record them. And then that gets zapped through the next day and a half of memes and mockery and whatever things can come with, you know, how kids can be. So they're so yep. good at being reserved now. And since they're so good at being reserved now with their friends, then when they're alone, they can't be because mm-hmm. you can't be like that all the time. And then their outlets online or their outlets, an older person as in Nikki's case. And so I, I was thinking about all these things when I was creating Nikki and all the conversations that I've had with kids or witnessed or, you know, overheard walking the hallways and um, it's just the idea of who they are. And then Nikki's, and because of that, I think in being a teacher, I think Nikki's character became really important to me. Just um, I wanted to, I wanted to like help her. You know, you, like you see some of the problems, you want to help her, but, um, you know, is she going to be helped? And I, I guess at the end, there's a sign that hopefully that she is going to be, you know. That's so, I, you know, and then I, I go back, like, um, like I guess with Francis, I just uh, based it on, um, I've always, I don't know, this. I've always been, I've always like gravitated towards really stronger, older women that have this wisdom about them. And I just wanted to like honor all of what I've learned from whether like all my mentors for the most part, when I was working on my, my thesis, I, I gravitated towards the, the female mentors and I just want to like honor them in some way with how much I've learned from them and created just this character in Francis. Okay. So. Well, I'll tell you what, Josh, now we've got to get to the point of a you and a little bit of your history. Now, we've talked about some of your inspirations, but tell us tell us about you and tell us of your beginnings and what really got you intrigued about writing and intrigued about film and that sort of thing in those days. Um, well, I was a kid. Like the, the first storyteller that I remember wanting to mimic, you know, we always want to steal, right? So the first storyteller that I wanted to mimic was my father. And uh, my dad, like I said, owned a restaurant. And then I think uh, this is back before Columbus boomed and like there weren't commercial restaurants on every corner of every, you know, suburb everywhere. So you like would go on a drive downtown where a restaurant was and people would go down there. And like think half of the people went in there just to talk to my dad. And so I remember as a kid, I'd just sit there and watch in awe of people just captivated by my dad telling stories. And then at home, I was also captivated. And I just found the power in storytelling. So in the fourth grade for Christmas, I demanded a word processor from my mom. (laughs) That's what I wanted because I wanted to write my stories. And then my little brother, Nick, uh, he would just sit on the bed. And he would listen to me work that processor. And then when I was done with my page and a half or two page story, I would read it to him. And I thought that was just, that was kind of the start of it. And I've always just wanted to tell stories. And I learned at a young age, if I take something that was normal, but I twisted it or I gave it the right adjectives or modifiers or timing, then it became intriguing. And I found the idea of storytelling just fascinating. So that's kind of where it all started. And then I always like imagined when I was, especially in high school, like winning an Oscar for best original screenplay and, you know, how (laughs) kids will project themselves with where they want to be. Heck, I think I still do that. Um, 
I think we so, all do. <laughs> that's kind of yeah, I think yeah, exactly. You know, it's you know, and it's the good thing about the the art world is never it's not for creativity. But I think that's kind of where it started, and just the power of being able to get a captive audience. And then um, in college, I would do stand up comedy because it was storytelling. That's all it was. It was yep. a stage with a microphone and a captive audience where I could work on stories and telling and just, um, so I did that for a little bit. And I think I've always just been drawn to the idea of, you know, relating information to somebody in a way that, that, um, speaks to them. That's cool. And this is really neat too. You're and, and how old were you when you started doing the word processing thing, the story, writing it, oh, writing it down? Fourth, fourth grade. So my daughter's wow. seven, she'll be in second grade. So nine. Yeah, That's I remember amazing. I was writing like uh, I had a series of a uh, of a detective uh, that I think, if I recall, was a teddy bear, and like you know there oh, was wow. like one suspect because you know I didn't know what I was doing, but there's one suspect and he'd solve it. But my brother would sit there and listen. I'd also write like spooks, like you know, I remember like airplane movies or The Naked Gun. I'd yep. write these. Um, I, I would take normal stories and then I'd write spooks on them and ridiculous things to make my little brother laugh. So I remember doing that. Um, and then in college, I actually went in as a creative writing major. And then, you know, 18-year-old me, and I don't, I don't know what 18-year-old man, uh, boy, I should say, makes great decisions. And I realized I had to take Spanish to get, to, as, to get my creative writing major. Yeah. And so I'm like, okay. nah, I'm gonna I'm gonna teach English. <laughs> so that, and then nice where did you major. and where did you go to college? This is before Wilkes. So where did you go to school? Yeah, this is Miami University. One of the oh, all right, cool. Yeah, and then uh, but I my parents are great. My mom was wonderful. She supported every endeavor I've ever had about writing. And so I wanted instead of graduating on time, I wanted to go an extra semester so I could fit in all of the creative writing classes that I would have taken had it been my major anyway. So mm-hmm. I had, it wasn't, they didn't have a minor in it, but I, I, so I went an extra semester and I took all the creative writing courses and, you know, learned so much from, uh, especially from a guy named uh, professor Stephen Bauer. He was great. Um, so, you know, and then after that, uh, that's the thing when you're out of that environment, you know, and you don't have either writers around you, how do you, it's hard to keep that momentum going sometimes. So there was a yeah. lull, you know, there was a long lull. I wrote a lot of screenplays that never came with anything. No one ever really read them, but I probably wrote like seven, just like one a year. I do one a year, one a year, just to keep me writing. But, you know, they're still stored away somewhere, I think. I don't even think they're on hard drive anymore. I think of like hard copies. This is, you know, back in the 90s. Right, right. Well, no, I don't know. My first, yeah. my first stab in the '90s is on paper somewhere in the world. <laughs> it's, it's here somewhere. Yeah. I'm not. I'm. I with great trepidation. Would I ever go back to that? But <laughs> I, I know um, what you mean. I know what you mean. Yeah. Now, in terms of getting published, now you you talk about the art of the short story, and there is indeed one to it. Um, what? How? And this is a thing right now. Is um, I have been reading. Uh, Sylvia Plath's letters, and uh, there are two huge volumes of these letters, most of them to her mother, and they they like her journals and her diaries are so detailed and so precise. Mm-hmm. And she from she she got a very early success to have uh, you know writing uh, her writing her stories and such uh, published, like I think in Seventeen magazine and that sort of thing. She would map out like the battle plan 
for what magazine she was going to go for and that sort of thing. Take us a little into the process of the magazines. How difficult was that? How unu- well, how unusual an experience was it for you? It was um it was you know, like you get optimistic, like you said, you write something, you think it's good, you think someone's just gonna take it, right? Um so uh, for Wilkes actually about five years ago I wrote a I wrote a blog about um, the like how I was getting published because I had a good run there for a little bit and uh, a woman uh, that was in that was running like the, that part of the magazine for the, the Wilkes asked me if I did like a guest blog I said sure and so here's what I kind of learned over the the five years of sending out my short fiction trying to get them published along the way uh, you know when the editors say pay attention to what this magazine is pay attention mm-hmm. to what the magazine is because if you know especially with literary fiction, with literary fiction, which all this is, it, it kind of works and fits, but they all have their own tastes. Uh, they all have their own wants, yep. and it, it, it could be that they don't want to read a suburb story. It could be as simple as that. So if they don't want something that deals with what they think has been done over and over again, even if it feels fresh and new or the voice seems original or honest in some way, they just don't want that. They don't submit it. So what I would do is I would read every single like editor note on their webpage. And then I would like try to like figure out the subtext of would my work jive with them in some capacity? And if it didn't, I, there's no way I would bother wasting their time or my time by submitting it. So I just mm, basically, okay. I would prof I would profile the publications and see if what I wrote would work. And, um, then I started because uh, I was I considered myself new, right? Like I was a new writer. Uh, I didn't have uh, many publications under my belt, especially when I didn't have any publications under my belt. Um, I would profile then new literary magazines, ones that were hungry, ones that wanted to read something and didn't even know what their magazine may be yet. So they had no right. understanding of what they were trying to create. So I would do that. I would go after new publications and I would go after ones that sounded like they would, you know, like my story because it's so subjective, so subjective. And then that's when it goes back to what I said earlier about like the personalized rejections where somebody responded to it, but they didn't necessarily want it. And right, that, right. And, and, you know, like um, most publications publish what? Under 5% of what they receive? Right. You know, so if they get 100 stories, they're taking five. Um, and then like, I even, I started to leave the big ones alone. Like the ones that everybody knows, even if you're not really a writer, um, like, you know, take the New Yorker, for example, um, yep. you know, like the big, big ones. I just, what's the point? Uh, especially with the ones like agents would contact them, you know, like just why even bother? Just, you know, don't even worry about that. I got over real quickly getting paid, you know, <laughs> Mm-hmm. I got over that. I didn't worry about that, but you just, it took time to research. And then they say, read our stories. So I, I read at least one or two of their stories just to see if um, it, it felt like something that I had written and they're busy. I'm busy. And so don't waste time. And you can't get, can't get offended if someone rejects your stuff. And that's what I tell my students when they go into the arts, you're going to get rejected. You're going to get rejected oh, yeah. a lot. And so you just got to get used to it and you got to learn from it and you can't let yourself get angry because if you get angry and think that no one understands you, 
you'll right. use that as a reason to quit, as if it was everyone else's fault that you stopped. Yep. That's very yeah, true. So. Well, listen, in, in the time we have left, Josh, what is next for you? Where are you going from here? Well, um, so when I was, you know, you talked about like you got to start a new project, <laughs> like when yeah. you're writing an old one or you're revising. Uh, so, you know, luckily, like, you know, like, like I said, Brown Posey and Lawrence, Lawrence was the one who championed, Lawrence Nora, he was the one who championed the book. Um, right. how I got this one published. Uh, I think it was originally rejected, and then he said he liked it, so he took it. So I was so thankful for him. Um, that was a that was a crazy three days. Um, so in 2016, I think, um, I have always had this story in my head where I wanted to, like, I like blending genres, and I like, uh, so I had, like, what if, like, Dead Poets Society meets uh, Needful Things by Stephen King? Like I had, like, what if a, what if a teacher, you know, was, was Satan. (laughs) So that was the concept I had and where it's gone since 2016 to now, it is (laughs) so remarkably different, but I've always been fascinated by religion and horror stories and anything that deal with like anything devilly. I find them unique and entertaining and uh, how do you put a new spin on something like that? So I've been writing this book for four years. I think I am finally complete, not completely, but like published where I would send it to a publisher or I would, you know, mm-hmm. try to query an agent and see if they were interested because if they said yes, then I feel like I'd actually have a product to give them. But essentially I asked myself a simple question. If, you know, God, you know, for the word that we need to use with a person that has complete power over his creation, wanted to create a, a second arc and do the Noah story again, what would mm-hmm. that look like in a modern day? And I didn't know, oh, wow. Tori. I had no idea. So I've been four years trying to figure this out. And so I've, you know, at the heart of it, it's a plot book, which, you know, you you read my collection. That's not plot driven. Uh, it's just... <laughs> So plot for me was new. Um, so I've learned, I've learned a lot sitting here, uh, waking up in the morning, trying to figure out what the heck I'm doing. Um, but it's got a lot of complications, and it just deals not so much with religion at the heart of it, but the idea of faith and what you choose to believe versus what you choose to discount and how if there's no actual evidence but only perception – how that changes who we are. And I think, you know, it's like with every horror story or a genre story, you need to find a human element to it, right. To make the characters Mm -hmm. work. And so I think that's where I am. And so it just deals with this boy who is um, 18, 17, 18, just turned 18. Um, And everywhere in his life he goes, tragedy follows him, but he doesn't know why people die. There's apartment fires. There's this horrific things, and it's all because he keeps moving around. And the moment he moves to a new town, although he doesn't do anything malicious, his presence creates these malicious things to happen. And he knows it, and he can't explain it. And then um, the final escape is, fittingly enough, to a place called Eden Isle, which is the, um, the title of the book. And uh, he just has to learn about himself and who he is and all these unexplained questions and if his mom is really his mom. And then okay. it is 
once he gets there, it's nonstop. Like, I'm reading this thing again. I'm like, oh, my gosh, i got to give the reader a break. It just doesn't quit. It just doesn't quit. And it's just psychological to the point where pretty much, you know, it's too much for a boy at 18 to deal with this stuff. So he starts doing some terrible things. And All right. I, 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 you know, and I, I already have my next idea in mind, and it's going to be the complete opposite of this. So then I have a short story of literary, you know, fiction. Now I'm doing this genre horror psychological thriller thing. And then the next thing I'm going to do is, you know, like dark adult stuff uh, with like a woman trying to figure out who she is. And I think just jumping around the genres. I don't know if you think that's a good idea or a bad idea. I've always wondered that because why is it supposed to get a niche, you know? I don't think there's an issue with that. My my work tends to drift between genres, and I I don't consciously write towards one. I may have at the beginning, or I I may begin a project that way, but... I don't think it's an issue at all, and I, my attitude is let it run. Let your ideas run, and they'll find their spots. That's the way I look at it. Listen, Josh, this hour has gone so fast, and we could go yeah, for yeah, another, I'm sure. Great. But listen, I wish you the best of luck with this, and thank you for coming on and for your time. This has been a blast. All right, Tori, thank you so much. You are welcome. Our guest has been Josh Penzone, author of The Court of Vintage Woods, available at brownposypress.com and Amazon. I'm your host, Tori Gates, author of Searching for Roy Buchanan. The sequel, Call It Love, is set for release later this year. This is the Book Speak Network. Yeah.